Yeah, I was uh, I was going to preach uh, a couple months ago, uh, right before Laura's grandpa passed away. But then I ended up preaching the funeral service instead. And afterwards, I told Caleb, I said that I would uh, I still had something I believe Lord had, was preparing through me. That if he needed me to step in, I would. And he's like, "Well, great. How about two weeks in a row?" And I was. Not what I was planning, but thankfully God knew that this was going to take more than one week, and um, I'm hoping I can get through what I've got here today. But uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for, for the opportunity to gather here today to, to hear your word. I thank you for the opportunity to grow closer to you, for you to reveal more of yourself to us. I pray that our hearts will be open to you and that your words will be spoken, that anointed word will be spoken. And despite my inabilities, that what you wish people to understand and know will, be, will come forth. I thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the reasons why I don't like uh, or didn't think about preaching two weeks in a row is because most of my sermons start off with a few years ago, and that's really no different here. When Laura and I were first married, I think we'd only been married for a couple of years, we didn't have any kids yet, we went through uh, a small group, and they were teaching, the book was When Sinners Say I Do, and there was some good stuff and some bad stuff, mainly more of a conversation starter than completely good theology, but... The majority of this book was on how people have the wrong idea about coming into marriage, about this perfect person that they're marrying. And even though most of it was on the marriage relationship, my mind was stuck on the parenting side of the book. And just the few parts and pieces that I took out of there, I figured I'd been married for two years. I had the husband thing taken care of. I didn't need to learn anything else. just needed to learn how to be a good dad before kids showed up. Uh, it's a good thing we went through the rest of that book, but I don't know if it was sermons that Pastor Tom was speaking at that time or just something I was reading, but nothing I was reading from the Bible was giving me peace. It was making it worse. You know, you go through the Bible and there's just countless examples of the people that we're supposed to emulate of their children not turning out right. You know, Abraham, he had eight children, and he only had one child, Isaac, the child of promise, that has any record of, of making it. The other seven, one Ishmael, which is the enemy of his people, and six of them, from what I could find out, almost all integrated with Ishmael at some point. And then Isaac, he had two sons, and only one of them made it. And then Jacob, he had 13 children. And as far as we know, only two of them, possibly three, we don't know much about Dinah, his daughter. But I was looking at these, I was just like, well, there's a promise in the Bible that our children will be saved. Why did the promise not work? Why did it not work for the people who originated, or the covenant was originated with? In you go through Judges, Eli and Samuel, the last two Judges, 
their sons so they didn't follow in their ways. You go through kings, and usually when it says they followed in the ways of their fathers, it was something bad. Or if it was something good, it was they didn't follow in all the ways of their father. Very, very rarely in the Bible does it say that the children turned out well. So my question was, why not? Why didn't the promise work? And if we turn to Genesis 18, we're going to start there. My first thought was maybe they didn't teach their children the Word of God. And we're called to. Uh, we're going to start there in 17. Genesis 18:17. And it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his house to hold after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which uh, he hath spoken of him. Now I'm reading out of the King James, but what stuck out for me there was... Um, Verse 19, in the NIV it says, I have chosen him because he will teach his children. So that statement there just says that he did teach his children. He, Abraham taught his children the word of God. If he hadn't cho- uh, taught them, then either God hadn't chosen him correctly or, or the Bible isn't correct. So I know that Abraham was chosen because he will teach his children. I knew that God said, okay, this is the first patriarch. I have something important. He will teach the generations after him, and the generations after him will teach their children. So teaching isn't the issue. It's one of the ways that we can make our calling and election sure. If we're not teaching our children, then how can we be sure that we're chosen? Because it says here that he that that was the only reason why Abraham was chosen. Didn't say anything about wealth, power, or the ability to raise an army, or to lead his people. <clears throat> it was about teaching his children and teaching his descendants. So I know that the, some people in here don't have really young children. Some people have grandchildren, but it still applies. And most of the day is going to be about young children, but. Um, it still applies to grandchildren, and Lord willing, next week we'll get into some older children. But I'm going to start here. You know, in, in, in the Western world, children are looked at much differently than they are almost everywhere else. Here, if you've had kids or know anyone who's had kids, you've heard someone say, I really just hope they don't grow up so fast. I really, you know don't want to bombard them with all this information. They're too young. But in other countries, in other you know, Eastern countries, third world countries, as fast as they can, parents and societies want their children to be self-sufficient. Because they have to be useful to the family or they have to be able to be useful to themselves. They don't... No one has promised tomorrow, and, and especially in those countries, you don't know how long you're going to be there for your children. But I hear constantly someone say, well, they're seven or eight years old. 
you know, let them grow up a little bit, or they're only 12, they're not, they're not even a teenager yet. They couldn't understand this. But someone here, uh, I don't, they don't go to church here anymore, but I overheard their conversation years ago when they said, well, you have till they're 13. And I didn't know what that meant. But it kind of struck me. It's like, well, why would you only have till you're 13? And when I was going through studying for this, I was looking up on, on parenting uh, sites and looking at the studies that they had done. And they said that from the time that up until 12 and 13 years old, as parents or as people around these children, that is when we hand them the building blocks and give them the tools. And from 13, it's different for girls and boys, but from 12 to 13 on, that's when they put their lives together. There's very little new input in what their personality is going to be after 13 years old. And, you know, if they're just building their tendencies after 12 to 13 years old, and that's when we just start to intentionally teach them how to be Christians, how to be men and women of God, or just how to live in society. How, why are we surprised that they don't know how to build their lives? Why are we surprised that at the decay of society right now, children and adults, adults don't know how to live life? Everybody's confused. They don't even know what gender they are in some cases. You know, I've started teaching my children physical tools, flathead, screwdriver, with a, you know, this one's a Phillips, this one's not, this one's a socket wrench. They don't know how to use them yet. But when the time comes that I say, you need a flathead for this, they can grab a flathead and I can teach them how to use it. I don't have to teach them what it is. At 13 years old, when they go to start putting together their lives, and they say, well, this is where the promise is, this is where you can find that in the Bible, if we're just now teaching them what that is and where to look for those things, you know, that's why we have the society we have today. You know, in, in Proverbs 22.6, that's the promise that, that I wasn't necessarily questioning, but I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. Let's, uh, let's turn to Proverbs 22.6 and go ahead and just read that. I'm sure everyone's heard it. But it says, Train up the child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, let's look back to where this started. Why didn't this work for Jacob? He was the father of the twelve tribes. I think it's important that we go through and we make sure that you know this uh, narrative that I have here fits the scripture and not the scripture fits my narrative. So, most people here would probably know. To me, a few years ago, it was a shock. I just, being as he was one of the patriarchs, and constantly throughout his life, Jacob mentions God and how God's blessing him, and God does bless him and talks to him. I just assumed everything that he did was fine. You know, he was always on the path he was supposed to be on, doing the things he was supposed to be doing, but... I was talking to Isaac a few years ago. Isaac, my brother, not Isaac, Jacob's dad. But he said, 
Well, he wasn't a man of God until he started, he wrestled with God. At that point in time, that's when his life actually changed. And it, and it blew my mind. And now when you start really thinking about it, the evil things that he did, I was giving him a pass on all that just because I assumed who he was. I didn't actually look for it myself. But it looks like it started you know, for him with his mother. You know, God promised his mother that he would be the one that was chosen. And he mimicked his mother in, in his personality. And his mother was Laban's sister, so she mimicked her, her family as well. Turn to Genesis 28. There's going to be a, a lot of turning back and forth here. And you'll start to see the difference between Caleb's preaching style and my preaching style. You can tell he was called to preach because he can take a verse and get a whole sermon. I'm going to take half of Genesis and try to do the same thing. So we're going to go to Genesis 28:13. And before we start reading there, this is right after uh, Jacob and his mother deceive Isaac and steal the blessing that Esau was supposed to get. And when Jacob goes to sleep and when he's on his way to Laban, and let's see, start there in, yeah, 13. Take one more page over. He says, And behold, the Lord stood above, above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac and the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it into thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in, the, and in thee and in thy seed shall the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee. And behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all the places, whether thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of thee. So God spoke to him in a dream and told him everything he would do for him and his family. All that he would give him and keep a place here. But we're going to turn over to Second uh, Samuel 7. And I, I like to uh, go back and forth. Sam, uh, not Samuel. David and... Jacob, their lives are almost the exact same. If you if you go through their lives and, and go uh, event for event, there's a whole lot of stuff in here that that will coincide. So we're going to start in Second Samuel seven and uh, eight, and we're going to read through the rest of that chapter there. But let's take a look at the differences between. First, the, the similarities between the promises in 7. So it says, In all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, I spake, have I spake a word of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded thee, my people Israel, saying, Why did you not build me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people. And I was with thee whithersoever thou went. 
and I have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that I will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and that... Uh, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set thy seed up after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he committeth iniquity, I will chastise him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all the vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And here's where David's response is. This is, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in my sight, O Lord, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. Is this, the man, uh, is this the manner of a man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, know thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these things to make my servant know them. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, and there is none like thee, neither... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that I have heard with our ears. So, David's response here is, "Who am I? You know, who am I that you that, that you would do this for me? Who is my family? Who is my nation? You know." He goes on. He says, "You know, Lord, let your name be magnified." David, if you if the the blessings, if you want to go back through on your own and, and and read them, besides David's being a little bit more detailed, are almost exact to Jacob's, and they're the same promise. But David's response there is, "I'm not worth this. I didn't do anything to earn this," and he was a king. <clears throat> In twenty one, there it says. Everything that you have done, so this is for your word's sake, for thy word's sake, according to your own heart, you have done these things to make your servant know them, to make just to make David know his word. That's why everything was done for him. You know, on, on a little bit of a side note, that would be a great way to live our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, when... We're in good times or bad times. Bad times are usually, God, get me through this. Good times, it's, Lord, just keep me in this place. But if we're sitting there and we're saying, you know, God, everything that happens in our lives, good or bad, is for one purpose, so that we will know His Word better. You know, there's times when we'll get 
on a path that God's leading us on, and we'll get to the end of that path. There's nowhere to go. And we says, God, why would you bring me to a place that has you know, nothing? I've done all this stuff to get to this point, but I have nowhere to go from here. And the devil kicks in there, and he's, that's where the devil can say, well, did he really lead you there? And it makes you doubt not only the path you're on that you before knew you were called to be on, but it also makes you doubt every path you take in the future. If, if we were able to step back and say, well, wait a minute, God, it's, everything is for a purpose. Even if this path ends here, what part of your word are you trying to give me to be a testimony now? This, your word can now be a testimony and not just knowledge. You know, I've experienced up to this point, but what have I, what have I learned? And that's what David said here is this, I don't just have knowledge of your word. This is my testimony. And that's a little bit of a side note, uh, free one, like uh, Pastor Tom used to say. But let's, uh, let's turn back to Genesis 28.20 and see the difference between David, David's heart and his response and uh, Jacob's. We're going to read through 22. Uh, go back. Okay. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God will keep me, or if God will be with me, I, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I become, so I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee a tenth. So he says, you know, okay. I learned from my mom. She wrote the art of the deal for him. This is. I know the first offer isn't the best offer. So if you'll do everything that you did, you said you'd do all this stuff, plus give me some really good food, and then you can give me some really good clothes, then you can be my God. Oh, and everything that you give me, remember, I'll give you some back. I'll cut you in on the profits. He learned this from his mother. And if you look really closely, there is some small differences between his and David's responses. But he... He mirrored his mother's personality. He mirrored his mother's um, deceit. And I'm not just picking on mothers here. But it appears, as far as Jacob went, his mother was the main influence on his life. <clears throat> but it didn't start with her. You know, I said before, I don't know what I was preaching on, but I don't believe in generational curses. I don't, you know, God is, is my father now, and he has no curses to pass on to me. But I do believe in generational sin. You know, our children will learn our sin. And if you go back to Abraham, he was promised protection from God, but he doubted that protection, and he says, well, you know, Sarah, she's, she's my sister. And he lied, and nearly caused an entire nation to be destroyed by God. Then Isaac comes in, has the same promise, and he says, well, I, you know, I know God promised me this, but I don't think without my help, with a little bit of deceit, 
I'll survive this. So he says Rebecca is his sister and nearly causes another nation to be destroyed. And then Rebecca comes along and says, well, I know I was given the promise that Jacob was the heir. But I don't think, if I don't add a little bit of deceit in here, it's okay. No matter what I have to do, it's okay because I have the promise. That's also the differences between uh, another one of those, between Jacob and David. David was given several chances to take his promise with uh, deceit or or killing someone, and he never did. But it goes on a 20-year story after this of Laban and Joseph, or Jacob, saying who can deceive the other one, who can cheat the other one the most. And I don't know why. I always overlooked this part, but after Jacob works for Leah and then for Rachel, he starts getting paid in cattle. And he performs witchcraft to get the cattle to come out the color he wants. The stuff he was doing, it wasn't anything natural. It wasn't gene therapy. He was laying up poplar trees and doing stuff that he believed would get him what he wanted. But he was stealing. He was teaching all of his children that he raised from the time that he was there to the time that he left. After 20 years when he left, he'd taken almost everything Laban had. But he kept on saying, God has taken these children, these uh, cattle from your father. God has taken this wealth from your father and given it to me. But his children saw what he was doing. When Jacob left, his three oldest sons, who, if you look at the end of his life, they had lost their inheritance. They had lost their birthright. The blessing that Jacob gave Reuben, Levi, and Simeon was more a curse than a blessing. His three oldest sons were 11, 12, and 13 years old. They had, in that time, learned who they needed to be. They learned how their father had used the Word of God to their advantage, to his own advantage. You know, it took 2,000 years for psychology and clinical trials to come up with something that just proves what happens in the Bible. On more than one occasion, I'm just going on this. But even after Jacob wrestled with God, and his name has changed to Israel, he changes his own life but it doesn't appear he has any desire to change his family's life, spiritually. It's roughly two years. There's no exact, um, there's like an 11-year span there from where there's not a whole lot of dates between when he left um, and I forget what the next date is, but two of his sons, Levi and Simeon, in revenge for... The, their sister being raped, murder an entire nation and lost their birthright. But they didn't lose their birthright, I don't believe, for murdering that nation. I think that nation was set up for destruction by God, obviously, because it happened. But in the Bible, we get to hear both sides of the story. We get to hear them saying, hey, all we have to do is intermarry 
and we'll consume Israel. We'll take everything they have and they won't exist anymore. That was their plan. So I believe God would have had them destroyed either way. But what their sin was, why they lost their birthright, why they lost their inheritance, is they used the promise of God. They used God's covenant with them as a tool of deceit. And they came in and said, hey, you know, remember when we had to go through that operation? And we were all sick and weak for a few days. Man, I bet we could... I bet we could do something if we can get them to fall for that. They had no intention of teaching them the ways of God. They weren't in any way hoping that they would turn and be followers of God. They used God's covenant and God's promise of prosperity and God's promise to save someone to destroy an entire nation. That's what their sin was. And they were between 12 and 14 years old when they killed every single person in a nation. And to me, and I can't even imagine a 13, 12-year-old, 14-year-old sitting around concocting a plan to murder hundreds of people, thousands of people, I don't know how many people were there. Um, But that's where I started looking at this promise differently about raising up your children in the way they should go because if when that happens in Louisville or some big city or somewhere else and says, man, a 13-year-old kid shot somebody in a mugging, my first thought isn't, man, God's promise isn't right. My first thought is, wow, they weren't raised right. It wasn't God's promise that, that failed these children coming in and and being followers of God, it was the example they got from their father. They did everything their father did. They saw him time and time again use God's word to deceive Laban. They saw that it wasn't really that important. If if you turn to Genesis 35, the first uh, four verses there, you can see it isn't until after all of that That Jacob takes their spiritual life seriously. He says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel, there and make there an altar unto God, and uh, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his house, household, and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garment. So, not until after his family is lost does he even begin to decide to change his family. You know, his sons didn't change with their father's request because they were, for thousands of years, what everyone would consider an adult. 18 is, not, is, is a, Western, a Western thing. You know, there's kings at six and, you know, soldiers at much, much younger ages. These kids were, were raised. You know, his, 
most of his, all of his kids were between 6 and 13 years old whenever he left Laban. Joseph was 6 years old. He still had time. He still got to see his dad, his father, change his life for God to fit what God wanted him to be. His older brothers only saw him change God to fit what he wanted. They were trained in the ways of Laban while Joseph was trained in the ways of God. You know, I, I heard a preacher say once that, I think uh, J.R. Miller, he said that our children will learn much more from home influence than they will for home law, from home law. And, you know, when our kids see us, how we interact with the Word of God, how we react to trials. And this, this, this goes at any age, but when we react to trials, they learn how much faith we have versus how much knowledge we have. You know, you know I'll get into you know, the parental influence on older children a lot more next week, Lord willing. But when it comes to younger children, and grandchildren, what image of God are we projecting onto them? You know, in, in, in Abraham's case, he didn't know, I'm sure, that a mistake that he would make would be repeated over and over and over and over through generations to come. And it would be a stumbling block for generations to come. Even at one point, in David's life, whenever he was worried that someone was going to kill him, uh, I forget what the guy's name was, he pretended to be insane and drool, and he had received God's promises all the way up to that point. And then he just decided, well, this one I got. So, you know, even me with temperance, is a month or so ago, I realized that I was cheating her out of the excitement of God's word. She came, you know, one Sunday just moseying around. She had to get ready for church, but had no desire. And I was like, we have to go to church. And she said, well, what are we going to do there? And I was like, well, you're going to get to see your friends. And once church is over, you guys can play. And then, I don't know if it was then or the next Sunday, I realized I just taught my daughter the best part of church is church being over. I just taught my daughter that, hey, once these people there are gone that you don't like or that you do like, there's no point in going back. And I had to go back and it's like, you know, we get to hear God speak. That is what is exciting about church. But... My initial response was just, let's just get her ex- excited about something she can be excited about. And anyone, Christian or not, otherwise, can be excited about going hanging out with friends. But I want her, whether her friends are on vacation and not at church or not, to say, I have to go. I'm going to get to hear something exciting. You know, the words of God that we give our children in that span, those are the building blocks. But all these people had those building blocks. Jacob had them. Isaac had them. All of Jacob's children had them. 
they all had the building blocks, but it's how we interact with the Word of God that gives them the tools. That's what helps them to interpret and to build their lives in those critical times. Now, am, am I saying that you know we only have 12 or 13 years to raise our children to train them up in the way they should go? No, it's probably more 10 or 11. First couple years, they're not really learning much. So 10 or 11 years before, according to this portion of Scripture, according to the studies they've done with children, 10 or 11 years is the influence that we have to help them build their lives. We can only... I know that there's grace in God. In God, I'm not saying that no one can come to Christ after 10 or 13 years old. But after 13, the majority of things we're doing is saying, <clears throat> you remember when I showed you this? Here's how it works. We're not showing them new things. They, they have... They've learned this from us, which means I have six or seven years left with one of my kids to train them in the way they should go to fulfill this promise. If this promise isn't fulfilled, it's not because God's promise didn't work. It's because I didn't take it seriously. And it really hit me because when I started preparing for this, uh, I guess a couple months ago. It was, I don't remember what Caleb was out of town for, but we had known for a long time that Laura's grandpa would be passing away soon. But it was, it could be any time. And for me, I guess growing up as a Christian, or growing up in a Christian household, I definitely wasn't a Christian, but everyone has heard, well, you're not promised till tomorrow. You're not, you know, any day could be the day, and to me, it was just, yeah, anytime. But we got a phone call, and they said, it's only got a few days. It might happen tonight. And uh, it hit me really, really different to hear it could be tonight. And even though he was a Christian, thank God for that, and he lived a life to prove it, the scripture that hit me was Luke 12. Let's turn to turn there real quick. We'll start off in 16, read through 20. It says, And he spake a parable unto, the, un, uh, unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall we do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater barns. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease and eat, drink and be merry. But God said unto him, You fool, this night, your soul shall be required of you, then who shall all those things be which you have provided? That's what hit me. And it kept hitting me. I thought to myself, man, if my life was required of me tonight, 
What of value have I left my children? You know, I'm preaching to myself. Even through preparing for this, my kids would come to me and just be like, hey, you know, Dad, I need this, or, or just want attention. I'd be like, guys, i got to study, or I'm too tired. I've been working, studying. I have to wind down. Just give me my time. And everyone would understand, you know, the work in the, in the study part, but I was still taking time to wind down, to entertain myself in some way, to get my mind off of work or mind off of this, this sermon. But I wasn't taking time to invest in my children. And that kept on hitting me over and over again. You fool. What if tonight was it? What if the influence that I've had on my children is all the influence I will ever have? What will they build? What life will they build off of the influence that I have given them? You know, it doesn't say that our children won't strike from the path. It says they won't depart from it. They won't end up on the wrong path. But there's that promise, like I said before, it is just as strong as the commandment. The end, you can... If the end of that wasn't there, the end of that can't be there without the first part being there. If you don't train up your child, there is no guarantee. Is there a way to bring children back? Is there a way to witness to people? Absolutely. That's something we'll get into more next week. But I have a family member that grew up the exact same way I did. She was taught the word a whole bunch of times. But it got to a point that, just like my family, their family strayed further away from the faith. So she had all the knowledge of the word, but never saw anyone put it into use. Excuse me. When she left her family, she ended up running into a guy claiming to be a Christian, and he walked her through the belief that he had, which is abominable. I don't know how you could get from the word what he got from, and now is her way of life, as far as I know. I haven't heard anything about her changing. But when asked about it, she said, said, you know, how could you get this from the Bible? You weren't raised this way. And she said, well, I wasn't raised. I always knew what we believed. I just never knew why. He showed her why. He helped her put together all the pieces that she had that didn't fit. And even though they don't fit with the Bible, they fit with her because that was the only influence she had that actually taught her the Word of God. There's two verses. We're going to finish up here because... Next part would be we'll get into next week. But there's two verses. You don't have to turn there. But you can read the second verse after every single promise in the Bible. Every one that I know of. And it puts into perspective how every promise should be taken. 
It's the first one we've already read a couple times. Train up the child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's Proverbs 22.6. And the last one one is Revelations 10.10. It says, And I took the book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. But as soon as I had eaten it, there was bitterness to my belly. This, I know that's a strange way to end a sermon. But that's how that hit me. The onerous is on me. The onerous was on Jacob. You train them up, and I'll take it from there. But if you don't, there's no guarantee. That was the bitterness that kicked in. It's like, wow, he won't depart from it. Then you just have to read it again. But I have to train him up. This is our part in the promise of God. There, God doesn't have us out here just uh, reading the Bible and making a positive confession and it coming true. This is our part. And this is that you know you show me, you know you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And that's that is what. And that's not a works theology, but we are commanded in this way to do this thing. And we have to take the commandment seriously as well as the promise. We'll pick up next week when we get into some of the older children. and It's a harder path, and it's not even clear to me you know, how to get back from not training your children. But there are ways. God has made a way, several points in the Bible, where people have come back. So we'll study on that. Lord willing, it'll become clearer to me so that I can bring that forward next week. But let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I thank you for this word, even though it's, at least to me, it is, it is heavy. I thank you that as heavy as it is, just like every other spot, every other word or portion of Scripture, as heavy as it is, you will show us how to bear it. You'll give us the strength to bear it. I pray that you'll give us the wisdom to take it seriously. I pray that you'll give our children the open hearts to receive the word that, that we give, that you will help our children to learn from our examples when we are right in your eyes and help them to overcome our examples when we're not. I pray that you will be with our children, that you will be with us and you give us all the strength to not just know the word, but to be in the word and to be of the word. I thank you, Lord, for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.